0: Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have all been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and yes, I have yet another announcement. I've decided to do away with the terrifying tidbits section of the episodes because I'm just kind of afraid that, you know, they might come off too repetitive and maybe not be super fun to listen to, but you know, if I do come across an interesting factor over the course of my research, then I will include it. And um, another note is that um, I'm not going to be uploading on any kind of like, you know, regular schedule because I want to prioritize the quality of my episodes over the quantity. I do work a full time job. I do do other things. So, you know, I just want to make sure that what I am putting out onto this uh, podcast is good quality episodes and full fledged stories that are well researched. Anyway, today's story is about James Henry Hampton, a middle-aged man who spent a significant portion of his life either scheming or being incarcerated. Acquiring money and goods by any means necessary was pretty much his motto. He didn't really have many friends or family in his life that were guiding him in the right direction. In the final few months of 1992, James decided that two women's lives, one in Missouri and one in Jersey, were worth less than their assumed wealth. James Henry Hampton was born on March 5th, 1938 in Louisville, Kentucky. James came from a poor family with 11 children and began attending a reform school at age 11. If you don't know, reform schools were meant to be a better alternative to prison for children who were convicted of crimes or were very disobedient. Most of these schools had been dissolved because there was a lot of abuse going on at these institutions, but in the 40s and 50s, they were still hanging on. But anyway, whatever methods they were using at that place weren't working because James got arrested for the first time when he was 17 years old. Let's explore a sampling of James's criminal history. On May 17th, 1955, he was charged in Jefferson County, Kentucky for trying to steal a car, and he was sentenced to one year in jail. That sentence got suspended, though, and he ended up serving just five years probation. A little less than two years later, on February 7th, 1957, James was arrested in Louisville on two counts of burglary. He was sentenced to two years in the Kentucky State Penitentiary and was released on October 21st, 1958. By this point, James was quite literally a hobo. He would catch different trains and would hitchhike around the Midwest. Two years after that on December 2nd, 1960, James was arrested in Frankfort, Kentucky and charged with armed robbery and stealing a car. He was then sentenced to six years at the penitentiary again and was released exactly five years later on December 2nd, 1965. Three months later on March 10, 1966, James had yet another run in with the law. This time he was charged with two counts of attempted burglary in Louisville, but only had to pay a $200 fine for some reason. This may not sound like a lot. But $200 in 1966 is worth almost $1,900 today, so that was a pretty steep fine. Less than a month later, on April 9th, 1966, James was at it again. This time, he crossed the border into Clayton, Missouri, which I believe was his first documented crime outside of Kentucky. But either way, he stole, so he was sentenced to three years in prison. He got out early on January 26th, 1968. He committed a couple of crimes in March of 1970 in Oklahoma City, but you know, the timeline is a little bit confusing to me here, but either way, he ended up being incarcerated until March of 1980 for burglary and transporting counterfeit goods. During all this time, he befriended a man named Gary Gilmore, who was believed to have inspired James to commit even more crimes. While James was in prison in Illinois at some point in the early 70s, he met Gary who, in 1976, would become the first person executed in America after the death penalty had been banned for a decade. It was thought that James wanted to emulate Gary Gilmore in all his criminal glory. Eventually, James ventured out of the Midwest and decided to start terrorizing Portland, Oregon for a little bit. In December of 1981, James was arrested for distributing heroin and was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he was paroled on October 4th, 1985. A few months later, on January 11th, 1986, James was arrested for assault and reckless endangerment in Portland again, where he was then ordered to serve five years in prison. James Hampton had served time in over 20 prisons in almost 40 years. Now let's fast forward to August 2nd, 1992. After James's most recent stint in prison, he was staying with a realtor named Patricia Sapinski in Callaway County, Missouri. They were apparently acquaintances, even though like, I have no idea how James was even able to make friends or maintain any kind of friendship outside of prison. But anyway, Patricia was the realtor for a couple, Frances Keaton, who was 58, and her fiance, Alan Mulholland. Frances worked as a beautician and had two adult children from a previous marriage. Now, this part is pretty much the direct impetus to the first murder here, and I cannot wrap my head around why Patricia decided to do this. She told James, a convicted burglar, that Frances and her fiance had at least $30,000 in their checking account. She then gave him a key to their house. Let me run this by you guys again. This woman told a felon at night That two unsuspecting people had tens of thousands of dollars available in their bank account and gave him a key to their home, which I can only interpret as her blessing to go steal that money. James left Patricia's home with a sawed-off shotgun, wearing dark clothes and a stocking cap over his head, and he headed off to Warrington, Missouri. He parked his car around 9 p.m. at Fellowship Baptist Church. To establish an alibi, I'm assuming, he would tell people walking by that he was having issues with his car. When they would offer to help him, he'd wave them off and explain he had a bike in the trunk and he could just use that. To really add believability to the story, he placed a note on his windshield that said, Car trouble. Gone for help. S.G. Gambosi." I'm not sure who or what S.G. Gambosi is, so I don't know if that was an alias or what, but after that, he hopped on his bicycle and pedaled three miles to Francis Keaton's residence. James made it to his destination at around 10 p.m., he woke up Francis and Alan and just straight up told them, I've come here to rob you. As an aside, this is literally my nightmare. Being awoken by an intruder in any capacity has to be genuinely terrifying. James proceeded to tie the couple up and demand that they give him the $30,000 that Patricia told him they had. The couple was confused and said that they didn't have $30,000, but Francis offered that she could possibly get $10,000 from her pastor. James removed her restraints and allowed her to put some clothes on. She took this as her chance to escape, but was quickly subdued by James. He hooked a clothing hanger around her neck and let her know that if she tried that again, she'd be killed. James then turned to Alan and said that he was carrying a police scanner. A police scanner is basically a device that you can buy to intercept or tap into police officers' correspondence via radio. James brought this up because if Alan called the police after he and Francis left... He would hear the communication through the police scanner and would then kill Francis. James and Francis made their way outside to Francis's car, where James got in the driver's seat and they headed back to Patricia's farm. Now it's about 1.15 in the morning, and the two are driving along pitch-black country roads. A thought popped into James's head: like, wait, how do I know this pastor has ten grand? He then commanded Francis to call her pastor to confirm that he would have the ten grand by nine that morning. The pastor missed her call and tried to call her back, but he couldn't get a hold of her. A little while later, unfortunately, James was made aware through his police scanner that the police were contacted about the kidnapping. What should have been good news for Frances was actually horrible news. Put yourself in her fiancé's shoes. What else was he supposed to do? He was in a lose-lose situation. He either sat there and did nothing to save his partner, or tried to help and hope that James would miss the communication or have mercy on her. But... Sadly, neither of these were the case. James pulled the car over to the side of the road and bound Frances' hands and feet and blindfolded her. He brought her to a forested area a little ways from the realtor friend's farm. He then beat Frances to death with a hammer and buried her body there. The next morning, James drove Francis' car back to Warrenton to get his car that he had left behind at the church. I guess he was cool with abandoning his bicycle at her house. He decided against retrieving his car because there were multiple police officers watching the car. I'm assuming the police didn't see someone approaching and then make the most suspicious K-turn of the century. So the day goes on, James is doing god knows what, and then he discovers that the police impounded his car. He's thinking there's no one around, so he tries to break into the impound lot. The police are there, they question him, but he gave them a fake name, and then they let him go. That's all it took. No further questions, I guess. James saw this stroke of luck as a second chance, so he gets the hell out of Dodge and makes his way to, you guessed it, New Jersey. Let's pivot to Wantage, New Jersey. Wantage is located in Sussex County, fairly close to the New York border. It's a rural town with a lot of farmland and a population of a little under 11,000. There's little to no crime, so it's basically just your typical northwestern New Jersey town. 48-year-old Christine Sherman was a bright and warm force in her small town. She was popular in her community for being charming, laid back, and incredibly giving. She was a devoted wife for 25 years to Dr. Alan Sherman and a mother to their two adult children. Christine worked as a registered nurse and ran a general medicine practice on their family farm with her husband. Because they were so loved by the residents of Wantage, everyone in town was a patient at their practice. Once Dr. Sherman hired more nurses and her kids were in college, Christine decided to branch out into other hobbies of the equestrian variety. She started a horse boarding business in the barn on their property where she had everything she needed to take care of the horses. The Shermans had a happy, solid, and simple life. But, unfortunately, we're talking about these people, so things are about to take a dark turn. On September 16th, 1992, six weeks after the death of Frances Keaton, Christine Sherman was found dead in her barn by her husband and her daughter. Dr. Sherman tried to take her pulse, but there was none. He had just lost the love of his life. When the police arrived, the Sherman's daughter was obviously a wreck, but Dr. Sherman wasn't really having a reaction at all. The police noted that once they saw Christine's body on the ground, they were even more disturbed by the doctor's lack of emotion. At first, they couldn't really tell how she died. There wasn't much blood, and she was laying on her front with her head to the side. The barn had a concrete floor, so police theorized that maybe one of the horses kicked her and she fell and hit her head really badly. Dr. Sherman pointed out a wound behind Christine's ear that looked like a bullet wound, but since the police didn't notice at first, they were suspicious of the doctor. The cops didn't see any immediately evident clues that pointed to Christine's cause of death or her potential killer. When more officers were called to the crime scene, they surmised that Christine was not caught by surprise by the way her gunshot wound was positioned and how she was laying on the floor. They also discovered footprints that trailed from the barn to the back of the Sherman's property. The attacker left behind a piece of candy on the ground, which appeared to be recently dropped because although the ground was wet and muddy, the candy was not. Detectives started digging deeper into the crime scene. The barn wasn't ransacked, so robbery didn't seem likely, so they flipped back to Dr. Sherman. His unsettling stoicism and acknowledgement of her unapparent wounds disturbed police, so they went back up to the main house where Alan and his daughter were. I know y'all always hear this in true crime stories, but... Not only does everyone grieve differently, but everyone also has a different range of emotions in general. Every person doesn't have the capacity to have the highest emotional highs or the lowest lows. Some people remain pretty constant no matter what's occurring. And although it can be off-putting, that doesn't automatically mean suspicious, uncaring, or evil. Or guilty. Police believe Dr. Sherman was withholding some degree of information or emotion. There was no way he was just quietly upset about what happened to his wife of over two decades. They questioned some of Christine's friends who suggested that there were problems in the Sherman's marriage, so the police began considering that as a possible motive. At this point in time, Dr. Alan Sherman was the main suspect. Police thought maybe he and Christine had issues in their marriage, and Dr. Sherman thought his only way out was murder. Maybe there was an affair. Maybe the murder was a plot to get Christine's life insurance payout. But neither explanation made sense for this couple. Dr. Sherman let them know that there was no affair happening, and although there was a life insurance policy, it wasn't being immediately cashed out or anything. Plus, it's pretty normal for married couples to have life insurance policies with their spouses and children as the beneficiaries. A financial motive also didn't really make sense because, as I stated before, they had a thriving medical business. Dr. Sherman told them he was in his home office at the time of the murder, which was not too far from the barn on the property, but he didn't see or hear anything weird, which was weird to the police. His story was confirmed by two of the nurses at the practice, but the nurses did say they saw something off when they were leaving the building at 8pm that night. They saw what looked like a dark-skinned man running from the barn. At the time, they thought it was a farmhand who was helping Christine, so they didn't say anything or question it. Then police are wondering two things. How did Dr. Sherman not hear the gunshots that were so close by, and who was the man running from the barn? Although they're fairly certain the doctor didn't directly commit the murder, maybe he hired the person who did. And (laughs) I'm not sure how else to phrase this, but they asked Dr. Sherman if there was any reason why a black guy would be running from the barn if they knew any black people. Dr. Sherman responded that there was no reason a black person would have been at the barn on that day. So that rules out farmhand, friend, or anybody the Shermans were close to. They then asked him if he had any weapons in the house. He did have a couple of rifles and handguns which were taken by the police. Other than that, all the police had were footprints and a piece of candy on the ground. The coroner report came back and showed that Christine was killed by a 38 caliber bullet. Lucky for Dr. Sherman, none of his guns matched the bullet wound Christine had, so police had to expand their list of suspects. The police couldn't completely rule Dr. Sherman out, but they had to start looking elsewhere while the trail was still hot. Literally. They got the canine units involved to try to follow a scent trail. And around 2 miles away from the barn, the NJ State Police came across an apartment complex. They described the suspect to someone who lived there and the resident gave them the name Javon Bennett. They talked to his family but he's not home when they want to bring him in for questioning. Javon had some petty offenses like burglaries and drug charges, so he wasn't unknown to the police. They discovered that he was delinquent on child support payments and thought maybe he robbed Christine Sherman for money for the payments and killed her. Possibly he was paid to be a hitman, which is why they couldn't rule Dr. Sherman out just yet. The police go to his friend Lauren's house. She told them that she saw him around 9pm at a party, but for some reason he was all rumpled and and sweaty, which was kind of weird and the vibes were just off with him that night. The partygoers assumed he was sweaty after walking a few blocks to get to the party, but police thought it was because he was running from a crime scene, as well as the stress and nervousness due to the severity of the crime. Lauren, the friend, said that Javon mentioned to someone that he had to make a call and then had to leave, but she had a phone there at the house. To be fair, I wouldn't want to make a phone call in the middle of a party either, but Lauren just never saw Javon after that. The cops finally found Javon outside of a local convenience store, and then they brought him down to the precinct. He was nervous, as to be expected due to the circumstances. He claimed he didn't know Christine or the Shermans and had never been to their barn. He just liked to walk and would often walk around the woods near their property. The cops checked his shoes, but they weren't a match with the footprints found at the crime scene, but they still weren't convinced that Javon wasn't involved in the murder. He was only at the party for part of the night, not the whole night, so they kept asking him over and over what he was doing during the time frame of the crime. No matter how they rephrased the question, they couldn't break him. But unfortunately for Jayvon, his delinquency and child support payments allowed police to still arrest him, which was just bad luck. Part of me wants to feel bad because he was arrested on a completely separate crime, but also pay your child support. Back on the Sherman farm, Dr. Sherman got an anonymous call in the middle of the night. The caller had a noticeable Midwestern accent, and they attempted to extort money from the doctor in exchange for information about his wife's murder. They claimed their roommate killed Christine and that they knew everything about the crime scene down to what was in the fridge and how Christine's body was positioned on the ground. Dr. Sherman speculated that the alleged roommate wasn't real and that the caller was actually the killer. The police were like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure, Jan. They were still considering Dr. Sherman to be a suspect and were now even less fond of him for lying and trying to create a red herring to throw them off his trail. Regardless of their skepticism, though, they checked Dr. Sherman's call logs, and sure enough, the call did happen— But despite the Midwestern accent, the call was coming from a payphone located just about an hour from Wantage, West Orange. Even with this new development, the case began to go cold because no more clues or leads presented themselves. All the police had were suspicions and a pile of disconnected pieces of information. Let's rewind back to August 15th. About two weeks after Frances Keaton's murder, her body was discovered on the realtor's farm. I'm going to assume that this was the moment that Patricia the realtor sold James out because the cops came looking for him. Because he was nowhere to be found, the investigation became a nationwide affair. About three months later, a little show called America's Most Wanted aired an episode on December 18th, 1992. And guess who was featured on it? None other than James Henry Hampton. We're now straddling both Missouri and New Jersey. And funnily enough... The caretaker of a church in West Orange recognized him from the show and called the police because James worked in the same church. He went by an alias there, but the caretaker was certain it was him. The payphone he called from was directly in front of the church. Okay, so you're probably thinking, he's right there, get him. But here's an important detail. James Henry Hampton was a 54-year-old white guy. And the police were looking for, say, like a 30-something-year-old black guy. It just didn't make any sense. How could this guy be connected to the murder of Christine Sherman? Police talked to the church caretaker and asked about James. According to him, James had been incredibly helpful around the church ground and worked as a handyman. The cops found him pretty much instantly, walking around the street near the church the next day on the 19th. They attempted to apprehend him, but James had one more trick up his sleeve. The little twist, if you will in the story is that James procured a gun from his pocket as he was being wrangled and put into handcuffs. Amid the struggle, he shot himself under the chin and the bullet exited his frontal lobe. In my dark sense of humor, he... he didn't die. Nope, he survived, and he was still put on trial. Some sources say he was trying to commit suicide because he realized he had finally been caught. Others theorize he was trying to shoot the arresting officers so he could escape and missed horribly. Police learned that the gun he shot himself with was, in fact, a 38 caliber revolver, the same type of weapon Christine Sherman was murdered by. All the pieces were finally coming together. The police knew that James owned the same type of gun that was used in the murder. He was found near the payphone where the creepy call originated, which was right in front of where he was living at the time. And the caretaker of the church said, I know that guy from America's Most Wanted. But what about the description of the killer? Well... James was wearing a black ski mask during the crime, so in the dark from afar, the nurses thought he was a black guy. And although this was an honest mistake, and I'm not going to pretend like I could positively identify anyone from 300 yards away on a poorly lit farmstead, it's really sad if you look at the larger implications of that. The police were accusing a completely unrelated black man of murder because eyewitness accounts are notoriously unreliable which makes me wonder how often this happens to people. Although Javon should have been paying his child support, he got snatched up because some random person at his complex was like, yeah, I know a stocky black guy who lives here. Also, those dogs completely led the police astray. Anyway, back to the investigation. Police found a ski mask, a pair of boots in James's closet that matched the footprints they found outside the barn that night, and the same candy they found on the ground right next to the boots. On top of that, Dr. Sherman confirmed it was James's voice on the phone when he got that call. About two weeks later, James became coherent enough after his self-inflicted gunshot wound for police to interrogate him. But James knew the deal. He had been criming for decades. He told them like 10 different stories that just didn't make any sense, so they knew he wasn't going to just confess without a fight. And fortunately for James, the crime lab proved that the gun he shot himself with was indeed the same one that, that killed Christine. In July of 1994, James Henry Hampton went on trial for the murder of Christine Sherman. Detectives had no idea how or why James ended up in Wantage if he was staying in West Orange and wasn't familiar with the state or the area. I guess by the doctor's office being on the property and, you know, there being a horse farm, he assumed there would be money he could steal. James had been skulking around the farm for days, casing the place. When he finally decided to run into the barn, Christine surprised him and he killed her. He then looked for something to steal checked in the fridge, and used that info to try to extort money from Dr. Sherman. When Dr. Sherman didn't bite, he gave up and tried to go back to his church handyman life. I think it's wild how absolutely dismissive and casual James was about murdering someone. He just shrugged it off, pretended like it didn't happen, and tried to settle back into his job at the church. James killed Christine because of money. That's it. And his own stupid phone call not only sold him out, but further traumatized her husband and children. James was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Christine Sherman. But that's not all, folks. We still need justice for Francis. On July 29, 1996, James went on trial for first-degree murder in Callaway County in Missouri. Four days later, on August 2nd, he was found guilty and the jury recommended he get the death sentence. On September 16th, he was officially sentenced to death. On February 2nd, 2000, the Missouri Supreme Court chose March 22nd as James Hampton's execution day. During both of James' trials, he believed that Francis and Christine both shared some blame for their own deaths. Christine struggled. Francis's fiancée, Alan, did what he told him not to. Just some awful testimony from James, as if people should just lay down and die when he doesn't get what he wants. Oddly enough, James was accepting of his death sentence. A neurologist testified at his 1996 trial that the trauma his brain had experienced from the gunshot wound was hindering his judgment. Also, people against the death penalty believed that his injuries affected his judgment on the matter. But James himself said, I see prisoners down in Potosi with 15 years on the row before they finally get to the execution chamber, and I don't want to go through that. I don't want to spend the rest of my life and die of old age in jail. Christine and Francis's children attended James's execution on March 22, 2000 after he spent four years on death row. LeVon Bolin, Francis' daughter, said he got off easy. It was like he just went to sleep. James didn't have to spend his last moments in fear and pain like LeVon's mother did. He got to walk into death, arms wide open. A journalist from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch named Bill McClellan visited James a couple days before his execution. He asked the convicted murderer, quote, if he felt any remorse for either of the murders. He seemed to think the question was off base. He said he had not intended to kill anybody. Instead, he had decided that if his plans went bad, the people would have to die. The plans went bad. The people had to die. Why would he feel remorse? I left the interview thinking that Hampton was a bad man, unquote. Well, since he had his ear, Bill asked James if there were any additional murder victims that the public should know about before he met his fate. James said yes. Bill wrote, quote, There had been six others during his long career as a criminal. Hampton, you may remember, was 62 years old. I asked about these other murders. Were they fellow criminals? Killed when drug deals went bad or something along those lines? Or were they like the two women we know about? Innocent citizens? More like that, said Hampton. They were people who maybe saw something they shouldn't have seen or heard something they shouldn't have heard. For whatever reason, I thought they were a threat to my personal freedom, he said. Unquote. This was a wild turn in my research. It's not uncommon for serial killers to have more victims than they've been formally charged for, but to everyone's knowledge, James Hampton wasn't a serial killer. A career criminal for sure, but he had never been charged for a murder before the ones that gave him life in prison and the death sentence. But for someone with this mindset, this wasn't exactly surprising. Bill McClellan added, quote, I talked to Hampton one last time on the phone. You've got a chance to do something good, something right, at the very end of your life, I said. Write me a letter about the other six murders. Put in enough details so we'll know you did them. Mail it to me, and I'll get it after execution. Why would I do that? asked Hampton. Because there's a chance that someone is doing time for a murder you committed, I said. Unquote. The idea that someone else probably got convicted for crimes he committed affected James not at all. But that's to be expected because he seemed to lack any empathy. He probably would have been elated if Jayvon was slapped with the first-degree murder charge instead. Before I dive into the conclusion, I just want to say that (laughs) I feel like Patricia, the realtor in Missouri, should have been charged with something. Aiding and abetting? I don't know. But from what I gathered from my research, she led James right to... Two unsuspecting victims. I have not been able to discern her motive, but she had to have known what she was doing. The fact that Francis has claimed to not know about the $30,000 makes Patricia's involvement even more confusing. What did she have against Frances and Alan? Did James threaten her first and then she just threw a a couple of randoms under the bus? But if that's the case, why did you invite him to live with you in the first place? I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm just so bothered by that and I believe she deserves at least some of the blame here. Even if she didn't think he would kill anybody, she still set Francis and Alan up to be robbed, which is terrifying. Also, somehow, America's Most Wanted came in clutch yet again. Listen to my John List episode if you want to hear another example of how this show brings killers to justice. Also, America's Most Wanted is coming back this year, 2024, and it's going to be hosted by John Walsh again, so you best believe I'll be tuning in. Anyway, the older I get... The more I realize, certain people just never had a chance from the beginning, and they're pretty much just a powder keg ready to explode. You're rarely born being this blatantly cruel and cold. There are people who are able to turn their lives around and beat the odds, and they can rise above the previous misguidance and misfortunes of their lives. Unfortunately, there are probably many more people who are just out for themselves. Casualties are shrugged off, and anything can happen to anyone as long as the final goal is achieved. Anything to protect yourself. What I found interesting in both Francis and Christine's murders was that James didn't even get what he originally set out to find. He was trying to get money from both of them, failed miserably, and made it their problem. Why is it their fault that they didn't have what you decided they had? Just with the knowledge of his attendance at reform school at age 11, his long rap sheet, and his apparent apathy to the suffering of others, I know something was likely pretty awful about his childhood. I feel terrible for Frances, Christine, and their respective families and communities. Both women were just living their lives at home before these absolute tragedies. Frances was going to get married to her fiancé, and Christine was enjoying the next phase of her life after her children had grown up. Whether you agree with the death penalty or not, James' last words were, take the phone off the hook, because he did not want Missouri Governor Mel Carnahan to swoop in at the last minute to stop his execution. The governor had no intention of doing that, but James wanted to prevent even the possibility because he had accepted his fate. Although this all happened over 30 years ago, I'm hoping for healing for everyone involved. And we can rest assured that from the year 2000 on, James Henry Hampton was not able to hurt anyone else. But that's going to be it for me today, guys. Don't forget to rate, share, and follow this podcast. And I'd love it if you follow me over on Instagram at at GrimTalesGS. I'll see you all next time. Goodbye!